I gotta say that one of the, um, one of, probably my biggest anxiety as a pastor, of all the things that I do as a pastor, my biggest anxiety is um, mixing up people's names. There's nothing that gives me more anxiety as a pastor. And in this COVID world, um, that's like a real thing. So uh, there's part, when, when the day comes, when we can all gather here and worship together, on um, a big, obviously, I'm incredibly excited about that. I'm also quite terrified of it because of the names that I'm going to mix up because of the challenge. And so I hope you will just roast me a lot and, and just make fun of me a lot during, during that time as I kind of fumble my way through, through that as I did a little bit this morning with the Bibles. But uh, anyway, I'm so glad to, to be here and to be with you and to have some people here with us, even as um, most of us are online this morning. But we're continuing um, our series. It's a three-week series. We're looking at faith and politics and, and how, as, as Christians, do we think biblically and theologically about how we approach the election. These three weeks, we're not really looking at the divisive issues necessarily, um, but we're, we're looking at kind of a big big picture uh, theological understanding of the relationship between church and state and, and as Christians in our public life. Uh, this has been a, a tumultuous um, year in 2020, of course, um, and the last four years has been tumultuous for many people as well, and so this is a very, very high stakes kind of election, and there's a lot of kind of nastiness around it as well, and so um, I thought it would be a, a really, in this sense, the spirit calling me to, to address this a little bit um, as our diverse body here, um, and so today we're, we're looking at a passage in John chapter 18, if you want to turn in your Bibles, if you're following along in your own Bibles, um, John chapter 18, we're looking at the story of Jesus and Pilate. So you remember last week it was Jesus and the coin and, and uh, give to Caesar what is Caesar, give to God what is God's and kind of the separation of church and state stuff. We looked at that and was Jesus political. Today we're looking at, um, at Pilate and his interaction with Jesus. And the question before us is, um, uh, is what's the difference between being political and being partisan? And so let's take a look at uh, the scriptures this morning. John 18 verses 28 through 38. Listen to the word of the Lord. Then they took Jesus from Caiaphas to Pilate's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the headquarters so as to avoid ritual defilement and to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered, if this man were not a criminal, we would not have hand him, handed him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews replied, We are not permitted to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill what Jesus had said when he indicated the kind of death he was to die. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you ask this on your own, or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. 
If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, so you're a king? Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this I was born and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate asked him, what is truth? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for being with us today. We pray that you will send your Holy Spirit to speak to us, even in the deep and protected corners of our minds and our hearts. Speak to us your word of truth and your word of grace that we might understand a little bit more what it means to be Christians in the world, especially in this month in this season. We pray that you will give us the faith and the trust to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, maybe you've heard someone say before, the church shouldn't dabble in politics. Have you ever heard that? I've, I've heard that many times, and I actually agree with a significant part of that. Um, I certainly share the concern underneath the comment, the church shouldn't dabble in politics, because politics is, is a messy business, and when clergy endorse a political candidate, or when churches uh, get behind the platform of a political party, we're putting our faith in an imperfect vessel. All political figures and all political movements sooner or later betray the values that we as, as Christians or people of faith hold dear. And when this happens, when human sin kind of manifests in our political leaders, people of faith often look to the church for guidance. But if the church has become entangled in party politics, then our guidance tends to look a lot more like uh, political bias than it does sacred wisdom. And the church's call is to offer sacred wisdom that speaks into our nation's public life. We see this, of course, in our own lives. We, we are tempted to um, sort of explain away the moral failures of those we support. Uh, this person, you know, might have be bad behaviors and, and things like that, but after all, he's God's chosen uh, leader. And then with the same mouth, we, we, we then um, pronounce judgment upon our political foes. Her behaviors and policies make me wonder if she's the Antichrist. You see this sort of thing all the time on Facebook, and the only winner in that kind of a proclamation is hypocrisy. Um, and so fortunately, uh, our tradition, our Christian faith has an antidote to this. It encourages people of faith to keep a vigilant and a, a, a keen eye on our priorities and on our loyalties. This is, of course, uh, the very first of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And so I think the Bible is clear in that communities of faith should not reduce our calling to a political agenda, no matter how compelling or seemingly congruent it might be. We must not bow down to any god but God. Now this raises an important question, though, doesn't it? If churches should in, avoid endorsing fallible politicians, should we also avoid making comment 
on the moral and ethical issues that are being debated by politicians? Should the church stay away? Should we be silent? Should we go into the desert and stay out of it altogether and separate ourselves? And here I think there's an important distinction that we, we ought to make. Engaging topics that, that matter, topics that are controversial and um, topics that have a wide range of, of opinions in society, engaging those topics is not the same thing as becoming entangled in partisan politics. Uh, I strongly believe in the adage that if we're talking about these things out there, then we ought to be talking about them in here. And sometimes from the pulpit, but more often in dialogical settings where you can have conversation back and forth in small groups, in fellowship groups, or one-on-one -on -one around coffee. As Christians, we're um, called to be engaged in this way, um, talking about the things that matter as part of the church because God cares about the world that he so loves. Now, this premise, it comes with two sort of ground rules. First, the church should provide a kind of a respite from toxic politics that we see in the world and that we experience and that we are often, you know, wounded and, and hurt by and perhaps we are tempted to hurt others by. But the church should provide a respite from toxic politics but, and endless blame games. And second, the faithful should never walk into church thinking that we can just simply bury our heads in the sand. In other words, yes, things are different here. We don't behave in the same way as they do in Washington. We don't talk to one another in the same way. We have a, a better way of, 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 of dialoguing with one another, but you cannot come here expecting to escape. This is not a trip to the beach. This is a place where we come to, to engage what's going on in the world. And these two principles, they work in kind of like a sacred tandem. They're held together. We all want and we, we all need to be freed from toxic politics, but the way to be freed from toxic politics, to put that behind us, is not through isolation. It's, it's the best way to heal our spirits and foster change in the world is for us to model an alternative, a different way of engaging issues that divide people, an approach to addressing important matters with grace and, as we said last week, humility ought to be our posture. In our text for today, Jesus and Pilate, Jesus kind of models what this alternative looks like in the face of Pontius Pilate. Now, unlike what's described in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in John's account, Jesus doesn't go before the Sanhedrin. He goes before Annas, who's the former high priest, uh, and then he goes before Caius, who's the reigning high priest, and we don't know much about those trials, but apparently those two Jewish leaders agreed that Jesus should be crucified for claiming to be the Son of God. And so then they hand him over to Pontius Pilate, to the governor. He was the Roman governor of Judea. Pilate's job was to maintain peace in Rome, and his job was to make sure that Rome's power 
was exerted throughout the Judea region, throughout Judea. And so he would keep the peace. And part of that was dealing with uh, the Greeks and the Romans. And part of that was, was, was dealing with the Jewish people who had their own religious law and, and kind of navigating them, but kind of keeping them in control, but helping them to um, flourish at some sort of controlled level. That was sort of um, uh, Pontius Pilate's job. And the charge the high priest made against Jesus was insurrection. He, that he was claiming to be king of the Jews, which is not only a rebellion against the Jewish people, but it's a rebellion also, an affront, an offense to Caesar as well. So him claiming to be the Jews is offensive to the Jewish people, and it's offensive to Rome. Insurrection was a crime punishable by death. It was a political crime. And so this charge kind of sets up the theme for Jesus' kingdom and, and kind of God's politics. In John's account of Jesus' trial before Pilate and his crucifixion, the word king or kingdom is used 15 times. Uh, John's account depicts Jesus as a king whose kingdom is not like this world. It's, it's not bound by the same rules. It's a kingdom that transcends geography. It's a kingdom that transcends time. It's a kingdom made up of all who believe in Him, who believe in Jesus, who follow Him, and who seek to love God and to love their neighbor. It's a kingdom of truth and light and life. And so when John describes Jesus as king, his hope is to persuade his readers that we would read the text and acknowledge Jesus as our king as well, to accept Jesus as our king. And when we do that, his kingship comes before our earthly politics and our earthly political allegiances. And so in Jesus' trial before Pontius Pilate, again and again, Pilate uh, found no basis for putting Jesus to death. He had no basis. He, he saw that Jesus was essentially innocent and didn't necessarily see the charge. But the crowd, including the religious leaders, they demanded Jesus' crucifixion. Would Pilate do the right thing? Or would he do the politically expedient thing? Pilate knew that the right thing was to release Jesus, but the text goes on to say that he was afraid. He, he noticed something about Jesus, that there was something special about him, but he was afraid of his reputation. He was afraid of how the Jewish people might think about him, about a possible riot that could um, be caused if he didn't give in to their demands. Uh, what would this do to his career? What would it do to his stature? And so, of course, in a very, very real sense, it wasn't actually Jesus' trial at all. It was Pontius Pilate's trial and the trial of the religious leaders who were standing before the real king, the king of kings, and sensed this man was more than he seemed and referred to him repeatedly as king. And yet, because of Pilate's concern for himself, he sent Christ to die. So it may have helped his political career, but 
essentially he failed the test that would lead to salvation. One of the most beloved, um, probably the most beloved of our church fathers, um, for both Protestants and Catholics, for all our Christians, is um, a man by the name of St. Augustine of Hippo. Some call him, refer to him as Augustine, some refer to him as Augustine, I call him Augustine, we don't really know, you can debate that. But St. Augustine of Hippo was in the fourth century uh, when he was born and, and lived most of his life. He then went into the fifth century and he wrote uh, the very first book, theological Christian book on faith and politics. It was called The City of God. And this, this incredible work is actually still taught in many universities as part of their political science curriculum because of its influence in shaping all of Western thought. Um, but especially for Christians, it has shaped the church's understanding of our relationship between, um, between our faith and uh, our political and our public life. It's a very complex and long um, book, but I, I want to boil down a, a few principles, theological principles for us from this book that I think are helpful for us today. Who was this person, Augustine? Well, Augustine uh, was, was a wild kid. He, um, he, he lived for pleasure. He kind of like a, had kind of like a prodigal son story, and he writes about that in his autobiography called The Confessions. It's an amazing, amazing book. Um, he was a, so he was a partier in his early, earlier life, and living for pleasure, and somehow he, at some point, he discovered that, that it was very, very empty kind of way of living. And so he found a Bible, and he picked up the Bible somewhere, and he read, and he had this very powerful uh, conversion experience to Christianity. But his real gift was his ability to synthesize Christian theology with ancient Greek philosophy. He was absolutely brilliant, and, and so this book was, he writes this book, City of God, and there are kind of two bits of context that are important for us. The first is the historical context in which the book was written. It was written actually just after the fall of Rome in 410 A.D., you might remember the fall of Rome, the barbarians, um, the Visigoths led by Alaric came in and sacked Rome in 410. And they came in kind of like a herd of elephants, just destroying everything in their path um, and destroyed this eternal city. Um, that was, that's kind of what Rome was called, right? It was known as sort of the eternal city. In 410, they mowed it down, and this was a cataclysmic sort of defining event for the people living in the Roman Empire. And as you know, by 410, the Roman Empire had become nominally Christian because the emperor, Constantine, was converted to Christianity in 312, and so the whole empire he declared to be supposedly a Christian empire. And the people, all of many of these people, after the fall of Rome, were questioning whether or not that was a good idea. They were saying amongst themselves and within their communities, um, it was the Roman gods, the pantheon who got us this far, and now that we have, have abandoned them for Christianity and this Christian God, Rome is destroyed. The gods must be angry at us for abandoning them um, and, and for giving into Christianity. So maybe we should go back to the Roman gods 
Because the central question underneath that, the central question was, was simply a theological question. How is it that God, the Christian God, who we've now given ourselves to as an empire, how is it that a Christian God could allow this eternal city, our wonderful city of Rome, to be destroyed? Not having good theology around that, they just wanted to go back to the Roman gods, thinking, okay, they must be angry at us. It's kind of like the temptation of, of the Jewish people, remember, when the Babylonians came in and they destroyed the heavenly city of Jerusalem. How is it that God could allow uh, Jerusalem, the heav heavenly city, to be destroyed? How is it that God could allow Rome, the eternal city, to be destroyed? And so Augustine is sort of writing into that question and into that context. It's a bit of historical context. But the other piece of the context has to do with Augustine himself and his own I would say his own theological anthropology or his own theology of what it means to be human. We need to know something about his view of human nature because it really shapes our understanding as Protestant Christians. Um, he had a very pessimistic uh, view of human nature or some might say a very realistic view of, of human nature. He was, he was famous for his doctrine of original sin. Original sin, of course, is the doctrine that comes right after original blessing. And so in the garden, in Genesis 2, it, God has given us paradise as an intention for how we live in harmony and in peace with God and one another. And when Adam and Eve chose to turn away from that in the fall, uh, they, they sort of took the rest of humanity down with them. And so this story from Genesis 2 kind of damaged humanity permanently. And that defect gets passed down from generation to generation. And so the effect of the defect, according to Augustine, is that we human beings cannot choose always what is good for us, what is right for us. We're incapable of living the kind of life that God intended for us to live. We're incapable of getting ourselves back to the garden, back to paradise on our own. The sort of life um, that we had in the very beginning to enjoy God's good creation. We can't perfect ourselves. It's beyond our capacity. Um, and this was actually important because it came in contrast to the other philosophers that Augustine was kind of sparring with um, in the day, and they had a very kind of elitist view that said actually through the formation of virtue and through human uh, wisdom and through human reason, we can uh, get back to perfection. And Augustine would say, well, human reason and virtue are really, really important um, things. They're very gifts of gra God's grace to us. They're fantastic, but never going to get us back to the garden. We're always going to be tainted by our innate tendency toward selfishness. The only way we're possibly going to get there is through this thing that Augustine called grace. The grace of God. This grace that is unleashed into the world through the death and resurrection of Jesus is a, it's a wonderful gift, and it is the healing substance that comes from God, from the outside. It doesn't come from ourselves. And it is that, that, that energy force that enables us to move forward in living, moving toward the life that God intended for us to live.
And so here's where the title of the book comes in. Augustine says that that life exists, the life that God intended for us, that paradise exists, that garden, and he called it the city of God. It is the heavenly city. It is God's destiny for humankind. It is where God is moving human history toward the city of God. It's, it's almost kind of like, without the violence, almost kind of like D-Day. You know, God has invaded through the event of Jesus' death and resurrection, but the reclamation is still going on. But ultimately, our destination for those who are citizens of heaven, and as Christians, we can only believe that we're citizens of heaven by faith, but we do trust that we are citizens of that heavenly city, which is called the city of God, which is governed by the love of God. It's not our right, but by faith we believe that. But meanwhile, we're living in the earthly city, in the earthly city that is still wrapped up in corruption and selfishness. It's dominated by selfishness. And on the part of political leaders, the will to dominate and the will to control. And so we, we shouldn't be surprised when we see Caesar stamp his head on, on a coin. That's what political leaders do in the earthly city. We shouldn't be surprised when Pilate chooses his own reputation over doing the right thing. That's what political leaders do in the earthly city. And so what then does this have to do with our politics today? Well, since Augustine had this idea that human beings are shot through with weakness and selfishness, it means that our politics are always going to be flawed. They're always going to be messed up. We're never going to be able to perfect a human program for the world. We can't get it right. Um, we cannot create a utopian society with the best government, with the best democracy, or the best form of government. And though we're called to work towards that, we are called to work towards that, but we're called to do that in a way that gives up the illusion that we can actually accomplish it. So we work towards that in partnership with God in response to God's grace in our lives. What this means, and this is kind of the main idea, is that we can never identify the kingdom of God with an earthly kingdom or nation or city. Not even the Roman Empire, not even the United States of America, not even Salt Lake City. We can never fully identify the values of Christianity with any political ideology or program, no political leader, and maybe most important for today, no political party. The second point is equally important. Even though we can't identify the values of heaven with an earthly program, we believe ourselves to be citizens of the city that is God's. And our job as citizens of the city of God is to live the values of that city here in the earthly city. To live the values of heaven here on earth. And so the church's job is to live and promote these values as Christian people. We cannot be like the Essenes who go off into the Qumran community and become apolitical and completely disengage from anything that might um, corrupt them. Jesus did not join the Essenes. We cannot be like the Zealots 
who use violence to overthrow and get our way and form a theocracy. Jesus didn't join the zealots. No, we have to figure out a different way forward. We have to be, as Jesus says, and as you know, in the world, but not of the world. And that means that we have to be involved in politics on earth, where we're free and permitted to do so. And when we're free to participate in our own process of getting to choose our leaders, that is a grace that is given to us that is foreign to the Bible and to the eras of the first century and before. This idea of a dem democratic society or a representative democracy where we can participate in our own elections, that is a grace that is given to us. And, and it's a grace that we're meant to use to steward for the sake of our neighbor and for our, the common good. And there are a lot of people in America today that have made the claim that this party is all about the Christian program. And if you're going to be a Christian, you have to vote for this platform and this person. Um, let me be clear that that's not a phenomenon that's unique to the right or to the left. It's a, it's a human phenomenon. And we all need to watch out for it. And so here's the point. As Christians, we're, we're called to be political. We're called to be about the agenda of Jesus. But we can not be partisan about it in our proclamation. So it can never lead us from this pulpit to say, being a Christian means being a Democrat. Or being a Christian means being a Republican. Or being a Christian means being an independent. Um, now there's a fine but, but a very bright line between being political and not being partisan. And the subtlety is this. If we're going to be about Jesus as individuals, exercising our conscience, that means that we're going to have to get involved in parties. In parties. As, as individuals. Not as congregations, but as individuals exercising are, are um, the free conscience of the individual, which is a high Presbyterian value. But not from teaching the Bible should that um, perspective be proclaimed, right? So if you're a Republican, you can't say from the Bible um, you should be a Republican. Or if you're a Democrat, from the Bible you should be a Democrat. No, there are Christians who are um, both of these things. I want to conclude by... by um, Sharing a, a little bit about a book that I've been really enjoying this week um, that I would recommend. It's, it's written by um, a pastor in the Washington, D.C. metro area named David Platt. It's a, um, he, he pastors a very politically diverse church, um, and it's a, it's a wonderful book. It's called Before You Vote, uh, Seven Questions Every Christian Should Ask. Some of you have already voted. I voted this past week myself, and I actually went through and asked these questions, and I prayed before I voted as well. Um, but I just want to tick through these really quick because they're really important for us, I think. The first question is this. Does God call me to vote? Ask yourself these questions if you haven't voted yet. Does God call me to vote? There are many different ways of engaging in politics or in, in public life. You can write letters. You can protest. You can serve at a, at a soup kitchen. There are so many different ways to get involved in society. Does God call me to vote? 
you have to answer that question for yourself. I would only just say that, again, it is a grace that we are given to participate in our process as Christians that I would imagine Paul and the first Christians of the first century would really enjoy to have had themselves. Um, question number two, I think this is the most important one. Who has my heart? Who has my heart? Is it this politician? Is it, or is it Jesus? Is it this party? Or is it Jesus? Is it my sociology? Because oftentimes we vote according to our sociology. Or is it Jesus? Who has my, my heart? And so pray before, pray right when you have your ballot on your desk and you're about to fill it out and surrender to your heart to Jesus as you do that so that your, your voting is in response and an expression of your faith. Question number three, what does my neighbor need? That's a really important one because sometimes we're tempted to vote according to our own interests. If I vote this way, you know, I won't have to pay as many taxes and I'll get to have more money for a boat. You know, no, 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 we, we have to pay, we have, as Christians, we're called to vote according to what our neighbor needs, which may or may not be higher taxes or lower taxes. Maybe your neighbor's a small business and they need lower, you know, you, we have to think through these things. What does my neighbor need? Number, question number four, and this is a tricky one, what is the Christian position? What is the Christian position? Because some, maybe some things there isn't one. And maybe some things there is one. Like, for example, if, if you're going to vote for a bond that expands um, technological resources for the um, public school in your neighborhood, what's the Christian position on that? I don't know, maybe, maybe not, you know. But what's the Christian position on, say, the vast majority of late-term abortions? What's the Christian position on tearing families apart at the border? You understand these are very tricky. And um, it's important that we think about what is God's heart on these issues. And that leads to the next question, then how do I weigh the issues? There's this, there's this, there's this, there's this. How do I weigh all of that? Because we've got to kind of weigh it all out. Maybe you have a pros and cons list. Maybe you kind of weigh it all out. Question number six, really important. Am I eager to maintain the unity in the church? and in the body of Christ. Not am I simply begrudgingly willing to put up with the fact that there are people who are different who go to my church, but am I actually willing to um, and eager to pursue that unity in a way that is a, a deep and sincere and genuine because simply avoiding the conversation does not have anything to do with unity. It simply has a way of avoiding division that might already exist but not be uncovered. But you can actually pursue unity by having intentional conversations um, uh, around civility and love and Christian ethic with people you disagree with and learn to have a successful conversation and it will actually deepen your unity in the body of Christ. And boy, does our world need that from us. And the seventh question then finally, so then, how do I vote? So how do I vote after all of those things? Well, that's enough for today. Let us pray. God, we thank you um, for calling us and for giving us um, the incredible gift of being part of a society where we can participate in these things. 
where we are not even having to worship in catacombs, fearing for our lives, fearing that we might be crucified upside down or beheaded, but that not only we can, we can worship, but we can even engage in things that matter to you and things that matter to us. So help us to, to, to walk this uh, fine but bright line, knowing how we can engage publicly as Christians, exercising our, the freedom of conscience of the individual, um, and help us to be faithful as we turn to you, as we give our hearts to you and respond to your grace. We thank you and we praise you and we pray for our nation. In Jesus' name, amen.